Let's open our Bibles to where Paul read for us earlier, Luke chapter 5. I've entitled the morning's message, I actually took it from verse 20, where it says, and when he saw their faith. So if you look at verse 20, I'll just read that. So when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And we'll make our way up to that. This morning we'll look um, at three different events in Luke chapter five. Number one, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers uh, to be able to do the work of ministry. That'll be number one. Number two, how does one's life grow in faith? And number three, we find here that Jesus forgives sin before he dies on a cross. And it's an interesting concept, interesting thing to think about, and um, does that appear anywhere else in the scriptures? So as we look at our first one this morning, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers for the work of ministry, let's read verses six, I'll go back to 15 because that explains verse 16. So we'll be reading uh, 15 through 19. Then the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him and lay him before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop, they let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So we're introduced to um, these four men, And um, as we talk about being equipped for ministry, uh, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. And when we get there, I'm going to have you put your marker in there because we're going to be coming back to it. I'm just going to read two verses, comment on them, and then we'll come back and read several more. Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to look at just verses 7 and 8 for right now. It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, I've been saying that every time I run across an Old Testament um, prophecy, I'm going to mention it. And I don't think I can give a Bible study from God's word without having that happen. Verse 8 is actually a prophecy from Psalm 68, verse 18. And so here, um, it had been fulfilled. We're talking about the event when the Lord was here, and he went back to heaven. And when he went back to heaven, it says he gave gifts to men. Well, those gifts we're going to see is a result of what happened in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell on uh those believers. So keep your figure there because we're going to be coming right back. 
um, John four, uh, turn to John 16, and while you're turning to John 16, I'm gonna read two scriptures from John 14. John 14, verse 25 says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you. And verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So again, what we read in Ephesians being repeated here, I'm here with you now, but I'm leaving. And when I leave, the helper um, is going to come. Now in John 16, picking it up in verse five, again, he's talking about his departure. So we read in verse five of chapter 16, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, what do you mean you're going away? You're not gonna be here? And as a result, they were sad. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So many times when we talk about um, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to people, really the primary purpose and the first work of the Holy Spirit in any person's life is that he makes you aware because of the presence of the Holy Spirit that you're a sinner to convict the world of sin. I mean, the very first time that Peter spoke um, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit is Acts chapter two. And it begins by saying that it was early in the morning and they began to speak in languages from different countries of tongues that um, they were languages because one person would say, well, he's speaking in my language the wonderful works of God. And um, other people that were non-believers, they mocked and says, these guys are drunk. And uh, Peter says, not so fast. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not, okay? And he goes on and he begins to preach. And as Peter began to preach, explaining who Jesus was, why he came, he gets to the part and he says, and it was you, Israel, you people here listening today that actually had him crucified. And he came here to die for you. And when it got to that part, the scripture says they were cut in their heart in conviction. And they said, what do we do? What you're saying is true. And it's getting us right here. What do we do? And he says, well, you need to repent. It's the first thing he says, you need to repent. So what do we read here when the Holy Spirit comes? What will he do? He will convict you. He will convict you of your sins and what the scripture says about us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Good place for an amen. No exceptions. This idea that some people are better than others um, and that somehow qualifies for entrance into heaven. No, scriptures are clear in this one. There's none righteous, no, not one, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So the first work of verse eight here, before he can give gifts, you have to become a believer. Before you can become a believer, you gotta be made aware of your sins and confess them as such. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. You see, there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father apart from me. There are not many roads to heaven. Matter of fact, the the scriptures say the way is very, very narrow and few that will actually find it. So, um, sin is a rejection. This is actually another uh, thing I could bring in here is you've heard about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is that? Well, it's the only sin Jesus said that can't be forgiven. There's only one sin that cannot be forgiven. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Well, Dwight, what's that? Well, that's when you're hearing the gospel You're convicted by the Holy Spirit knowing it's true, but instead of repenting, you turn and walk away. Therefore, you can't be saved. Your sin can't be forgiven because Jesus is the only one who can forgive sins. Not a good place for an amen. So yes, we'll be called narrow-minded and bigoted and so on and so forth, and you're not very broad in your thinking. No, not at all. I'm very narrow in my thinking. And then it goes on to tell us of righteousness because I will go to my father and you will see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. He's talking about what happened on Calvary's cross when he would be victorious by defeating Lucifer. He hasn't yet reclaimed what he purchased, this planet, and remake it. But uh, the judgment of the devil took place there. I have still many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Holy Spirit, notice it's in the masculine, of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of himself or his authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come, and he will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, all things, that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and he will declare it to you. Now I want you to make your way to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If the first thing the Holy Spirit does is convict you so that you can get saved, well, what we read in Ephesians 4, uh, 7 and 8 is that when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. So every person here, if you're born again and you're saved, you have a gift. And what I like about 1 Corinthians 12 is sometimes we have a misconception about one gift being more important than the other. Or um, especially when it comes into exercising our gifts we might not think they're as, as important. And 1 Corinthians 12 sets that clear. Matter of fact, 12, 13, and 14 are the primary chapters that explain to us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, in 
chapter 12, verse one, the very first verse, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And yet many people today are ignorant about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's pick it up in verse 14. Uh, The misconception here is that um, some may think because I stand up here and I'm behind the pulpit, that's a more important position than somebody else might have. This clearly tells us that that is not the case or true at all. So let's look at verse 14. For in fact, the body, here's the body here this morning and worldwide, the Church of Christ, is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Now if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were a hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as it pleased. He pleased. And if they were all one members, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet only one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Imagine uh, your other four toes saying to the big toe, we don't need you. Big toe would answer back, go ahead, try walking without me. (laughs) Absolutely necessary. And those members of the body which we think less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. But our uh, presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which, which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for the other. Your gift, whatever it is, is just as important and even more important than you might realize as, as we look at the body of Christ. Um, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ in members, but individual. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helps, the gift of administration, varieties of tongues. Um, are all apostles now all of these are going to have, of course, a no after them. No. Are all prophets? Of course not. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gift of healings? Of course not. Do all speak with tongues? Well, the answer is not yes there, even though some hold to that and believe that to be the case. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. So all the gifts, if you go to chapter 14, verse 12, your gift is important. But a lot of people don't exercise their gifts um, because they're really not interested in anything other than themselves. What do you mean by that? Well, all the gifts without exception, 
across the board are given to you so that you can build up somebody else. One exception. And that is a gift of tongues. If you look at chapter 14, verse four, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies a whole church. Now look at verse 12. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So every gift, and you're wondering why um, you're not experiencing the, uh, your gift, well you have to have the understanding it's given to you so you build up somebody else. There's this misconception that we have, uh, well how many people came to the Lord at your church this morning? And the implication is that my job is to be an evangelist to preach the gospel so that people can have an altar call or walk forward. The problem I have with that is I don't find that anywhere in the scripture. A lot of people do it. And I think an evangelist, uh, like last Thursday, we were honoring uh, Billy Graham on the 21st, this last uh, Thursday, for those of you who were here. Well, I, I thank the Lord for a Southern Baptist who does not believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit who has the gift of evangelism, <laughs> like no other on, on this planet. So the irony of that so you cannot believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like Southern Baptists don't, but yet Billy Graham, unquestionably the greatest evangelist that I've ever, at least in my lifetime, have ever um, been privileged. Actually, I had the privilege of meeting him um, in person in uh, Dallas, Texas, at X, what was called Explo 72. And we did have... Um, uh, crusades every single night for a week. They had all the early Jesus musicians that were there. Love Song was there. Um, Larry Norman was there. I can I can just talk on in a second service. Snowstorm outside, I don't care. You guys could get home by three, don't care. Barry McGuire was there and um, had divine appointments there. We went street witnessing every day. It was really a... Um, Unique event. Um, first time I met Tom, Dr. Tommy Ice. He said, I was there, Dwight. I was there at Expo 72. And so we marched down memory lane. And um, But again, without losing my, I got to make back to where I was talking about here. The gifts of the Holy Spirit, obviously Billy Graham, who we wanted to honor last Thursday, has a gift of being an evangelist. How many people, besides myself, have come to know Christ by his preaching? But having said that, I believe, let's go back now to um, um, Ephesians, that that's not my responsibility. Oh yeah, I witness to people all the time, but not here on Sunday morning. What we do here on Sunday morning is we teach the word. So we already read seven and eight, now let's pick up verse nine through 13. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean, but also he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I think there should not be an and there. I think the pastor, his primary purpose is to be a pastor teacher teaching. Why? 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Work of ministry? I thought that was your job. No, that's your job. Well, what's my job? My job is to teach all the full counsel of God so that you become equipped so that you do the work of ministry. Now just think about this for a second. Every person here works at a different location. You have different friends and um, you may be the only witness that you have in your sphere of influence, whether it be at your work site or whether it's family and friends or just your friends, period. You might be the only Christian witness they will ever see. So in order to witness to them, number one, you first must be saved. The Holy Spirit must be working, active in your life so that when you speak and you bring up the subject of sin that we've all sinned, and by the way, you're a sinner too. Yeah, but I'm not that bad. Well, yeah, actually you are. (laughs) And bring them to a place where the Holy Spirit allows them to be equipped to repent. And so we find here that it's your job, not my job, to do the work of ministry. My job is simply to be faithful in teaching this book so that you're equipped to do the work of ministry. Good place for an amen. It goes on to say, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. Why? I I didn't read this in the first verse. The reason we need to be equipped especially today when people are getting away from the word of God, doing a lot of storytelling, a lot of motivational speaking, so that you leave happy clappy without any real conviction there. When we're equipped, then verse 14, that we should no longer be children that are tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, or by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. The devil is the deceiver. The parable of the the tares and the wheat. You have the real real deal, the wheat, that's the gospel. But there's a whole lot of tares out there. Uh, Walter Martin's book, The Kingdom of the Cults, is all the false tares that are in the world today that have another way of you um, getting to heaven. And um, so if you're equipped and you have a lot of spiritual meat of this book on you, well, then you can spot a phony. You can see a false doctrine. You're not tossed back and forth. You're planted on a solid rock. And Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not going to change. Men's prayer yesterday were, were in Deuteronomy. And um, it said, be careful. Don't add anything to this book. Don't take anything away from this book. We talked about it. Well, you realize that's the last thing the Bible says in Revelation uh, 22? Don't add anything to, don't take anything away, or I'll bring the judgments that are written in this book upon you. Sounds to me like the Lord is pretty serious about his word and how we um, uh, take it in and, and apply it to ourselves. But we're to speak the truth in love. That means we're not to be argumentative. 
but grow up in all things unto him who is the head, even Christ. So this first one here of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, uh, the necessity of having um, God equip you. Now, as it pertains to our study this morning in Luke chapter five, what I'm about to quote, um, I'm taking from J. Vernon McGee. Um, Mr. McGee says here, there are many people who are not going to receive the message of salvation unless you lift a corner of that structure and carry them to the place where they could hear the word of the Lord. They are paralyzed, immobilized by sin, and by many other things the world holds for them. Some are paralyzed by prejudice and others by indifference. They are never going to hear Jesus say to them, your sins are forgiven, unless you take the corner of the stretcher and bring them to him. All of these incidents reveal the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to spread the message of salvation to others. McGee says, that's why I preach the word of God. That's why I do too. And remember that one cannot carry a stretcher alone. It took four men to carry the stretcher of the paralyzed man. More men and women are needed today to help get the word of God out to those who need him. Good place for an amen. These four guys were going to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. They loved him. The word was out. We read in verse 15 that um, the multitudes were there. And so they had a friend. They loved him. And now Jesus, I believe this was taking place in Capernaum, if I remember right, um, they, they said, he's here. Let's get our buddy and let's get him over there. Now, they had one concern that this man would be able to walk again. So these four guys were going to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Got a question at this point. Is this the same mindset? Do you have the same mindset that these four guys have for your friends? I mean, they were willing to do whatever it it took. Philippians 2, 5 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Wherever the Lord went, he was always looking around. He was watching this. Who had the greatest need? And that's who he would gravitate towards. And um, when was the last time you asked someone, hey, do you want to go to church with me? Um, so they can hear God's word and know how their sins can be forgiven. Actually, their people are, a lot of people are afraid of what people will think about them if they ever had the audacity to say, hey, why don't, you, why don't you come to church with me this morning? What for? Oh, so you can hear the word of God. Well, you think I'm a bad person or what? And you can just hear the excuses come in. And um, you might lose a friendship. Well, guess what? We just studied just a couple weeks ago that when he came, he was despised and he was rejected. Well, I don't like being despised and rejected. I like being liked. Well, then don't tell anybody about the Lord because you're going to offend somebody just by bringing the subject up. You ever notice um, if you have break rooms where you work and you might, the guys might be sitting at a table, maybe they're telling a dirty joke, okay? 
Um, I'm making this up as I go. And all of a sudden, you just walk in the room, and all of a sudden, it gets really quiet. And everybody's, oh, he's here. Stop saying that story. Or don't talk about that. Not here, not now. Look who's in the room now. And um, that's what we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It calls you a restraining force. Do you know that? When you walk in a room and they're saying things that are inappropriate, your very presence causes them to stop talking. That's what a restraining force does. Well, someday in Luke uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, it says the restrainer is going to be removed. And that's when all hell breaks out on the earth. And um, I don't think that day really is very, very far away. So, you know, you gotta count the cost knowing that if, if you share your faith, invite people to church, you'll probably lose some friends. So what? You know, let's go on to number two. Uh, number two, how does one's life grow in faith? Let's go back to Luke chapter five. We made it up to verse 19. And we, I'm only gonna read half this verse. It's where I got the message, the title for the message this morning. In verse 20, so when he saw their faith. Now we, we read just up above that the power of the Lord was present to heal them. But here it clearly says that he's observing, I mean, they interrupted whatever teaching the Lord was doing. They couldn't get in, so they were clever enough to take down some tiles and imagine in the middle of a Bible study, all of a sudden you see this guy coming down, being lowered on ropes right in front of you. And the Lord actually looked up and said, who are these guys? But it says here, when he saw their faith, So how does one's faith grow? Well, let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11 for that one. We'll read three verses there plus verse six. Hebrews 11 verse one. And just ask the question, what is faith in the first place? What is faith? Chapter 11 verse one, now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. These four men, by faith, were hoping if they could get their buddy to Jesus that he would be healed. And they believed that. Um, The evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. How did the world come into existence? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you either believe that by faith, or you believe that there was nothing, and then nothing exploded, (laughs) and it created uh, billions and billions of galaxies that are, what is it up till now, like 20 to 30 a billion light years that we and we notice that it's expanding exactly what Job said that he stretches out the heavens like a garment that's exactly what the universe is doing so you got one or two options by faith you can believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth well how did he do that well he just spoke it 
into existence. That's not irrational. I'll tell you what's irrational. It's having nothing explode. (laughs) That's irrational. But there's nothing irrational at all about an eternal God who has always existed, who's all-powerful, and by the power of his word can speak anything he wants to into existence. Now, I believe that. Why? Because that's what the word of God So when we read here, so that the things which are seen, the world that we live in, were not made of things that are visible. He spoke them out of nothing, and they became something by the power of his word. Now go down to verse six. Goes on to say, but without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when we hear that God became flesh, that's what we read in John 1 verse 14, we beheld his glory. He created, John 1 says, he created all things. And they were created for him and by him. And that he took on flesh and blood and he walked here amongst us. So we believe we believe uh, in him, uh, and we do because of faith, and without faith, we're told here, it's simply impossible to please the Lord. That begs the next question. So, if we know what faith is, and uh, God isn't pleased unless we have it, the question is, how do we get it? If you're taking notes, Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing. That's what we're doing right here, right now. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And my friends, no other way. The faith that you have, your stability, mentally, emotionally, physically, whatever, all comes by how well you are grounded and know this book. Jesus said, he told the parable of a wise man and a foolish man. He said there was a wise man who built his house on the rock. He said the storms came, the winds blew against it. It was a winter storm with 50 mile an hour wind gusts, (laughs) trying to make it relevant for our study this morning. And um, the house stood because it was founded on something stable. And he says, that's the wise man who hears the word of God and does it. He says, but then it was this foolish guy. He built his house upon sand. And the same storms came the same winds blew, but because it wasn't founded on something solid, like the word of God, the house fell. And that is a person who hears the word of God but doesn't apply the word of God. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Let me give you a practical example of exercising your faith. Uh, We need to turn to to, um, Matthew chapter 14, we're always giving Peter a hard time, aren't we? He usually speaks when he shouldn't. And, um, but, you know, in this particular instance, I'm impressed very much with Peter. The setting is um, the storm that Jesus walks on the water. Matthew is the only one that gives an account of Peter asking the Lord if he could join him. So let's pick it up in verse 22. 
And again, this is to me an example of what faith should look like. Immediately Jesus, verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself and prayed. And when evening had come, he was alone there and the boat was now, notice this, in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves and the wind were contrary. Now it was the fourth watch, so that means that would be between three and six uh, a.m. in the morning. It was the fourth watch of night, and Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear, but Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, then command me to come to you on on the water. This is what I call a real step of faith. But notice that he's not presumptuous. He says, if he can do it, I wonder if I can do it. And just get out of the boat and see if it works or not. No, he he talks to the Lord about it first. He says, Lord, if, if that's really you, then you command me. Now you're in control and you're, you're the one who has the authority for this to happen. So you command me to come, and the Lord said, go for it, Peter, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Let's give this guy some credit. He wasn't afraid to get out of the boat. What do you mean, Dwight? A lot of times we're afraid to get out of the boat. We're afraid to do something that the Lord has said, come on, let's, let's do this. Let's take a, what Chuck would call, Pastor Chuck would call, a venture of faith. Let's just step out and see if, if uh, the Lord does this. Lord, should we be doing this? Of course, you want to acknowledge him first of all. And if he says yes, then don't be afraid. But make sure you keep your eyes on the Lord while you're doing it. Because if you take your eyes off the Lord, what happened to Peter could happen to you. Well, what happened to Peter? Well, let's read. We read, and it says, and Peter said, um, uh, verse 30, and when he saw that the winds were boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and he said to him, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? See, what is the opposite of faith? Doubt. What is the opposite of doubt? but faith. So here, I, I really commend Peter for doing the impossible. And a lot of times, we, fight, we think we're in impossible situations. This person could never get saved, never, if you only knew them. Well, just get out of the boat. Try something original. Well, what if they don't listen to me? Well, it happened to the disciples. They went through a certain village. Nobody wanted to hear a word the disciples had to say. So the Lord said, what do you do? Shake the dust off your feet and you go on to the next one. So we read here, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. There are four miracles going on here. Number one, Jesus walks on water. Number two, Peter walks on water. Number three, he gets in the boat and the storm ends. That's the third miracle. What we read in another gospel is that it says they were in the middle of the sea 
But when Jesus gets into the boat, they're immediately at their destination. Raptured, if you will, from the middle of the sea to exactly where they wanted to go. We have four miracles taking place just in this one part right here. So I think this is a great example of uh, exercising faith, not being afraid to get out of the boat. So by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. Grace is a gift. But it must be personally received. Uh, How simple, simply believing by faith in God's word brings about salvation. But it has to be your own personal choice. The person you're praying for, for their situation, um, it may seem impossible. You think this person will never, ever get saved. Um, I don't see any way I can get them to Jesus. Well, these four guys had faith, and uh, they were going to do whatever it took to get their buddy so that they could hear this friend could hear the words of Jesus. So my prayer often is, especially for my old, old friends, Lord, I don't care, whatever it takes. You know, the word says it's the goodness of the Lord that leads a man to repentance. We should respond that God loved us so much. That should hit us somewhere. That he would die for me, that's good. But that isn't the way most people get saved. My experience has been personally and the majority of people I know have come to Christ when they've been going through difficult situations. When the sailing is smooth, what do I need God for? But all of a sudden there's a crisis. All of a sudden there's a medical emergency. All of a sudden something bad has happened and God's got your attention. And a lot of people come to the Lord that way. It's not what he prefers. He prefer you respond because of the love that he has for you on that level. So let's go back to um, Luke chapter um, five and move on to our, our third thing I'd like to point out and that is the second half of verse 20. The first part is, so when he saw their faith, he said to a man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, well, who does this guy think he is? This is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly the point. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go home. Immediately he rose up before them, took what he had been laying on, departed to his own house, glorifying God all the way home, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. That's an understatement. (laughs) So let's go back to this question. Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven you. And 
as I think this, uh, he goes on to say, uh, as answering the, the religious self-righteous Pharisees and leaders, that's blasphemy. He says, okay, well, what, what's, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. Well, the answer to that is, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because how would you know? How would you know? Can you look inside this guy's heart? Oh yeah, all sins are gone. No, God knew. And so he goes on to say, um, I'm, just, I'm just picturing his friends at this time, that they're there for one reason. You know, they want their friend to walk again. He's been paralyzed. And instead of the Lord doing that, he looks down at the guy and says, okay, your sins are forgiven. And I'm, if I'm one of the, his buddies, I'm saying, Lord, that's not why we're here, okay? <laughs> we're here for a completely different reason. Everybody's getting healed, and okay, his sins are forgiven, and that's great, but what about the walking part, Lord? And seeing their faith, um, uh, he says, okay, rise, take up your bed, and go home, which proved that what he said earlier, that's why he put the sins are forgiven first. He wanted them to know that he, his real mission is more important to be spiritually healed than it is to be physically healed. Unless, amen. Let me give you an Old Testament example of God forgiving sin before Jesus died on the cross. You need to go to the book of Isaiah, chapter six. Isaiah six. Oh, someday we're gonna see this. What Isaiah sees in Isaiah six, the church is going to see in Revelation chapter five. Exactly what I'm about to read, you yourself are going to see for yourself one day. Isaiah six, verse one. Now in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Wow. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah is standing in this, and he's looking at this, and he goes, oh no, woe is me. I am undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and what? Your sin is purged. God forgave Isaiah's sin so he could stand in the presence of the Lord. If you're God, you can forgive sins anytime you want to. And that's clearly what we're reading in Luke 5. Man, your sins are forgiven. 
I'll prove it. Get up and walk. So Jesus forgave sin before he died on the cross. Why could he do that? Because he's God. What I want, want to point out here, and I'll begin to wrap this up at this morning, with this question. What should be our response of having our sins forgiven? How should it affect us? How should it motivate us? And what should be our response knowing that the slate has been wiped clean, that I wake up tomorrow morning and it says his mercies are new every single morning, I get a clean slate every day, even though on my best day I've sinned at least seven times, you know that's what the Bible says? So imagine your best day ever. You still still sin seven times. The good news is if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you wake up tomorrow morning with a clean slate. Now if that doesn't make you happy, I don't know what will. If that doesn't put joy in your heart, I don't know what will. I know that sin takes away my joy and until I make it right with the Lord and say, Lord, I blew it, I lost my temper, I did this, I did that, I was speeding, whatever. But I was wrong. And will you forgive me? Yes, I will. And he says, I'll not only forgive you, but don't bring it up to me anymore. Because when he takes our sins, he says, I will remember them no more. There's somebody sitting here watching online that's still beating themselves up over something they did 20 years ago. And they keep repenting of the same thing even though it happened 20 years ago. That's the enemy, the accuser of the brothers, not the Lord. If you bring it up to the Lord, he says, what are you talking about? I don't remember that. Wouldn't it be great to be God? And the sins, when we sin, they're actually, we can forget them. The Lord actually, being God, decides that's what he's gonna do. I'm gonna remember them no more. I'll separate them as far as the east is from the west. And by the way, tomorrow morning, you're gonna wake up with a clean slate again. So, we find in uh, uh, what our response should be if you're still in Isaiah. What was Isaiah's response to having his sin purged? The Lord asks a question at this point. In verse eight, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, well, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Notice it doesn't say who will go for me. Oh, let's go for us. Picture of the Trinity. Who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, send me. Wow, this is great, have my sins forgiven. What do you want me to do? If you're taking notes, 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, for the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Isaiah's heart was changed. His sins were forgiven. He says, yeah, Isaiah, but I want other people to know about my goodness. I'm looking for somebody. The eyes of the Lord are looking all the time. Um, Not for your ability, but for your availability. Are you willing? Willing to take a step of faith? Willing to talk to a neighbor even though they may have, might offend them? Or they may never want to talk to you again? Yeah? In Matthew 28, it's the same for you and I. This is right before Jesus is being taken into heaven. Um, it's how the Gospel of Matthew closes, and it's called the Great Suggestion. 
No, it's not called the great suggestion. It's called the great commission. What should our response be for having our sins cleansed? I'm quoting Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity again. Teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, oh, by the way, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. End of the book of Matthew. The response for having a slate wiped clean. You're as white as snow as far as the Lord is concerned. You're a chaste virgin that he calls his bride. And he's coming someday for his church. In the meantime, he says, I want you to occupy. I want you to occupy till I come. Be about our father's business. You're the only person, maybe in the job site, that's a Christian. You're the only person in a circle of friends that you have. And you might be the only witness that they ever see. The Bible says let the light shine, right? Don't hide it under a bush bucket. Take it off. And, and um, I'll close with, turn to the book of James, chapter two. James, chapter two, the importance of exercising our faith. Picking it up in verse 14 of James two. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Question mark. Before I go any farther, let's make something clear. There's no work that you can do that can save you. Somebody give me an amen on that? So it doesn't mean here that you have to have works in order to be saved. What it is saying is because you have faith and you have been saved, it's gonna manifest itself by doing good works. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of, a, one of you says to him, well, de- depart in peace, be warm and filled, have a nice day, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Um, because of the snowstorm, we were gonna take a, a love offering this morning for food for people in Haiti. Why? Because that's what we should do, and we should, our heart should be moved for our brothers and sisters in Haiti to do such a thing. Um, we're not gonna do it this morning because of the storm. But I'm announcing it this morning. So you got a whole week to think about it and pray about it so that when we take a collection, it's gonna say, make it out to Calvary Chapel of Appleton, put Haiti in the memo, and it's being designated just for food. That's what this one is doing. Why? Because we do see our brother destitute, naked of daily food. Like Paul said, this guy that walked five and a half hours to get eight jars of peanut butter. Um, All my many trips to um, Haiti, my friends, that's the norm. Uh, They're up at daybreak. And if you're strong enough, they carry a five gallon (laughs) uh, empty bucket down to the river, dig a hole, and they can't take it right out of the river water because it's so polluted. It's gotta sift through the sand. So you get a more, it's still brown looking, but um, they'll carry it back. 
Uh, and that's how they get their water supply. We're blessed having invested in this um, water purification system, but it's very, very rare if you're in rural Haiti to have anything like that. Still, they're walking to get their water in the morning. I wish everybody could go to Haiti at least once. You would never complain about anything again (laughs) when we see how good that we actually have it. I have no problems when when you consider uh, what a lot of our brothers and sisters are going through. All right, Um, verse 16. And one of you says, depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for that body. What does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the devils believe and tremble. Oh my goodness, have you ever heard somebody say, well, I believe in God? Well, guess what? The devils believe in God too and they tremble. Are the devils going to heaven? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. They not only believe in him, uh, the demonic man in the land of the Gadarenes acknowledged who he was. You're Jesus, the son of the most high God. What do you want with us? And they trembled when they saw him. Faith without works is dead. So as we wrap this thing up um, this morning, as we make our way through the Bible, we have a very practical study on, on the importance of not just having faith, but in going, just in your mind's eye. Somebody that you know, you actually love this person, or at least is a good friend. And you know he's not saved. My question to you is, what are you doing about it? Work up the nerve, get out of the boat. Hey, let's call him John. For Hey, John, let's go to church this morning. And just get out of the boat and ask him. Bring him to a place where, again, my job is to teach, is, is to preach, but you're the one who's actually doing the fishing. You're the one being equipped to do the work of ministry. Don't be afraid. Get out of the boat, take a step of faith. What's the worst that could happen? You lose a friend? Yeah, but you got to put that scripture in his head. And he says, I don't want to hear it. So okay, he goes home. This is your job and this is what I'll leave you with. You've just planted the word of God in somebody's body. And the God's word says, it will not return void. What does that mean? That means it's stuck there. So this is how you pray. Lord, I pray you will not let him sleep tonight. I pray that what your word that's in his head will keep him up all night long. And he won't be able to get it out of his head. Where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Lord, don't let that broken record stop playing. Holy Spirit, keep pouring it on until he gets to a place where he yields and he actually comes around. Don't stop praying. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. As we wake our way through the gospel of Luke, we see four men that were motivated because they had a buddy that was paralyzed. 
And Lord Jesus, you saw the faith of these men. And you proved two things. Number one, that you were God by forgiving this man's sin and proving it by commanding him to get up and carry his bed and go home. Lord, forgive us for not exercising our faith as much as we we ought to. Forgive us, Lord, for not uh, being that person that is willing to get out of the boat and take chances and talk to people about the best news that's ever been presented to planet Earth. So Lord, give us your boldness, discernment, and wisdom in these last days as we see the day approaching um, to share with our loved ones. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We see four men that were motivated because they had a buddy that was paralyzed. And Lord Jesus, you saw the faith of these men. And you proved two things. Number one, that you were God by forgiving this man's sin and proving it by commanding him to get up and carry his bed and go home. Lord, forgive us for not exercising our faith as much as we we ought to. Forgive us, Lord, for not uh, being that person that is willing to get out of the boat and take chances and talk to people about the best news that's ever been presented to planet Earth. So Lord, give us your boldness, discernment, and wisdom in these last days as we see the day approaching um, to share with our loved ones. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.